Section 40 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 1, Part 4. The day came. Christophe had no anxiety. He was too full of his music to be able to judge it. He realized that some of his works in certain places bordered on the ridiculous. But what did that matter? Nothing great can be written without touching the ridiculous. To reach the heart of things, it is necessary to dare human respect, politeness, modesty, the timidity of social lies under which the heart is stifled. If nobody is to be affronted and success attained, a man must be resigned all his life to remain bound by convention and to give to second-rate people the second-rate truth mitigated, diluted, which they are capable of receiving. He must dwell in prison all his life. A man is great only when he has set his foot on such anxieties. Christophe trampled them underfoot. Let them hiss him. He was sure of not leaving them indifferent. He conjured up the faces that certain people of his acquaintance would make as they heard certain rather bold passages. He expected bitter criticism. He smiled at it already. In any case, they would have to be blind, or deaf, to deny that there was force in it. Pleasant or otherwise, what did it matter? Pleasant, pleasant. Force, that is enough. Let it go its way, and bear all before it, like the Rhine. He had one setback. The Grand Duke did not come. The royal box was only occupied by court people, a few ladies in waiting. Christophe was irritated by it. He thought, The fool is cross with me. He does not know what to think of my work. He is afraid of compromising himself. He shrugged his shoulders, pretending not to be put out by such idiocy. Others paid more attention to it. It was the first lesson for him, a menace of his future. The public had not shown much more interest than the Grand Duke. Quite a third of the hall was empty. Christophe could not help thinking bitterly of the crowded halls at his concerts when he was a child. He would not have been surprised by the change if he had had more experience. It would have seemed natural to him that there were fewer people come to hear him when he made good music than when he made bad, for it is not music but the musician in which the greater part of the public is interested, and it is obvious that a musician who is a man, and like everybody else, is much less interesting than a musician in a child's little trousers or short frock who tickles sentimentality or amuses idleness. After waiting in vain for the hall to fill, Christophe decided to begin. He tried to pretend that it was better so, saying, A few friends, but good. His optimism did not last long. His pieces were played in silence. There is a silence in an audience which seems big and overflowing with love. But there was nothing in this. Nothing. Utter sleep. Blankness. Every phrase seemed to drop into depths of indifference. With his back turned to the audience, busy with his orchestra, Christophe was fully aware of everything that was happening in the hall, with those inner antennae which every true musician is endowed, so that he knows whether what he is playing is waking an echo in the hearts about him. He went on conducting, and growing excited, while he was frozen by the cold mist of boredom rising from the stalls and the boxes behind him. At last the overture was ended, and the audience applauded. It applauded coldly, politely, and was then silent. 
Christophe would rather have had them hoot. A hiss! One hiss! Anything to give a sign of life, or at least of reaction against his work. Nothing. He looked at the audience. The people were looking at each other, each trying to find out what the other thought. They did not succeed, and relapsed into indifference. The music went on. The symphony was played. Christophe found it hard to go on to the end. Several times he was on the point of throwing down his baton and running away. Their apathy overtook him. At last he could not understand what he was conducting. He could not breathe. He felt that he was falling into fathomless boredom. There was not even the whispered ironic comment which he had anticipated at certain passages. The audience were reading their programs. Christophe heard the pages turned all together with a dry rustling, and then, once more, there was silence until the last chord, when the same polite applause showed that they had not understood that the symphony was finished. And yet there were four pairs of hands went on clapping when the others had finished, but they awoke no echo, and stopped ashamed. That made the emptiness seem more empty, and the little incident served to show the audience how bored it had been. Christophe took a seat in the middle of the orchestra, he dared not look to right or left. He wanted to cry. And at the same time he was quivering with rage. He was fain to get up and shout at them, You bore me! Ah! How you bore me! I cannot bear it! Go away! Go away, all of you! The audience woke up a little. They were expecting the singer. They were accustomed to applauding her. In that ocean of new music in which they were drifting without a compass, she at least was sure, a known land, and a solid, in which there was no danger of being lost. Christophe divined their thoughts exactly, and he laughed bitterly. The singer was no less conscious of the expectancy of the audience. Christophe saw that in her regal airs when he came and told her that it was her turn to appear. They looked at each other inimically. Instead of offering her his arm, Christophe thrust his hands into his pockets and let her go on alone. Furious and out of countenance, she passed him. He followed her with a bored expression. As soon as she appeared, the audience gave her an ovation. That made everybody happier. Every face brightened, the audience grew interested, and glasses were brought into play. Certain of her power, she tackled the leader, in her own way, of course, and absolutely disregarded Christophe's remarks of the evening before. Christophe, who was accompanying her, went pale. He had foreseen her rebellion. At the first change that she made, he tapped on the piano and said angrily, No! She went on. He whispered behind her back in a low voice of fury, No! No! Not like that! Not that! Unnerved by his fierce growls, which the audience could not hear, though the orchestra caught every syllable, she stuck to it, dragging her notes, making pauses like organ stops. He paid no heed to them and went ahead. In the end, they got out of time. The audience did not notice it. For some time they had been saying that Christophe's music was not made to seem pleasant or right to the ear. But Christophe, who was not of that opinion, was making lunatic grimaces, and at last he exploded. He stopped short in the middle of a bar. Stop! he shouted. She was carried on by her own impetus for half a bar and then stopped. That's enough! he said dryly. There was a moment of amazement in the audience. After a few seconds, he said icily, "'Begin again.' She looked at him in stupefaction. Her hands trembled. She thought for a moment of throwing his book at his head. 
Afterwards, she did not understand how it was that she did not do so, but she was overwhelmed by Christophe's authority and his unanswerable tone of voice. She began again. She sang the song cycle, without changing one shade of meaning or a single movement, for she felt that he would spare her nothing, and she shuddered at the thought of a fresh insult. When she had finished, the audience recalled her frantically. They were not applauding the leader. They would have applauded just the same if she had sung any others. But the famous singer who had grown old in harness, they knew that they could safely admire her. Besides, they wanted to make up to her for the insult she had just received. They were not quite sure, but they did vaguely understand that the singer had made a mistake, and they thought it indecent of Christophe to call their attention to it. They encored the songs, but Christophe shut the piano firmly. The singer did not notice his insolence. She was too much upset to think of singing again. She left the stage hurriedly and shut herself up in her box, and then for a quarter of an hour she relieved her heart of the flood of wrath and rage that was pent up in it, a nervous attack, a deluge of tears, indignant outcries and imprecations against Christophe. She omitted nothing. Her cries of anger could be heard through the closed door. Those of her friends who had made their way there told everybody when they left that Christophe had behaved like a cad. Opinion travels quickly in a concert hall, and so when Christophe went to his desk for the last piece of music, the audience was stormy. But it was not his composition. It was the Festmarsch by Oakes, which Christophe had kindly included in his program. The audience, who were quite at their ease with the dull music, found a very simple method of displaying their disapproval of Christophe without going so far as to hiss him. They acclaimed Oakes ostentatiously, recalled the composer two or three times, and he appeared readily. And that was the end of the concert. The Grand Duke and everybody at the court, the bored, gossiping little provincial town, lost no detail of what had happened. The papers which were friendly towards this singer made no allusion to the incident, but they all agreed in exalting her art, while they only mentioned the titles of the leader which she had sung. They published only a few lines about Christophe's other compositions, and they all said almost the same things. Knowledge of counterpoint, complicated writing, lack of inspiration, no melody, written with the head, not with the heart, want of sincerity, trying to be original. Followed a paragraph on true originality, that of the masters who are dead and buried, Mozart, Beethoven, Loewe, Schubert, Brahms. Those who are original without thinking of it. Then, by natural transition, they passed to the revival of the Grand Ducal Theatre of the Nachtlager von Granada of Konradin Kreutzer. A long account was given of the delicious music, as fresh and jolly as when it was first written. Christophe's compositions met with absolute and astonished lack of comprehension from the most kindly disposed critics, veiled hostility from those who did not like him, and were arming themselves for later ventures. And from the general public, guided by neither friendly nor hostile critics, silence. Left to its own thoughts, the general public does not think at all. That goes without saying. Christophe was bowled over. And yet there was nothing surprising in his defeat. There were reasons, three to one, why his compositions should not please. They were immature. They were, secondly, too advanced to be understood at once. And lastly, 
People were only too glad to give a lesson to the impertinent youngster. But Christophe was not cool-headed enough to admit that his reverse was legitimate. He had none of that serenity which the true artist gains from the mournful experience of long misunderstanding at the hands of men and their incurable stupidity. His naive confidence in the public and in success, which he thought he could easily gain, because he deserved it, crumbled away. He would have thought it natural to have enemies. But what staggered him was to find that he had not a single friend. Those on whom he had counted, those who hitherto had seemed to be interested in everything that he wrote, had not given him a single word of encouragement since the concert. He tried to probe them. They took refuge behind vague words. He insisted. He wanted to know what they really thought. The most sincere of them referred back to his former works, his foolish early efforts. More than once in his life he was to hear his new works condemned by comparison with the older ones, and that by the same people who, a few years before, had condemned his older works when they were new. That is the usual ordering of these things. Christophe did not like it. He exclaimed loudly. If people did not like him, well and good. He accepted that. It even pleased him, since he could not be friends with everybody. But that people should pretend to be fond of him, and not allow him to grow up, that they should try to force him all his life to remain a child, was beyond the pale. What is good at twelve is not good at twenty, and he hoped not to stay at that, but to change, and to go on changing always. These idiots who tried to stop life, what was interesting in his childish compositions was not their childishness and silliness, but the force in them hungering for the future, and they were trying to kill his future. No, they had never understood what he was. They had never loved him, never then or now. They only loved the weakness and vulgarity in him, everything that he had in common with others, and not himself, not what he really was, their friendship was a misunderstanding. He was exaggerating, perhaps. It often happens with quite nice people who are incapable of liking new work which they sincerely love when it is twenty years old. New life smacks too strong for their weak senses. The scent of it must evaporate in the winds of time. A work of art only becomes intelligible to them when it is crusted over with the dust of years. But Christophe could not admit of not being understood when he was present, and of being understood when he was past. He preferred to think that he was not understood at all, in any case even, and he raged against it. He was foolish enough to want to make himself understood, to explain himself, to argue, although no good purpose was served thereby. He would have had to reform the taste of his time. But he was afraid of nothing. He was determined, by hook or by crook, to clean up German taste. But it was utterly impossible. He could not convince anybody by means of conversation, in which he found it difficult to find words, and expressed himself with an excess of violence about the great musicians, and even about the men to whom he was talking. He only succeeded in making a few more enemies. He would have had to prepare his ideas beforehand, and then to force the public to hear him. And just then, at the appointed hour, his star, his evil star, gave him the means of doing so. 
End of section 40.